So um, I was interested this evening to talk about contentment. And um, in starting off, I wanted to uh, tell you of a little custom that I, I like to do. Um, I'm, I'm particularly fond in the last years of looking at old photographs. They should ideally be more than 100 years, 100 years old. And, um, and I'm really drawn to them for some reason, drawn to them. And um, I like particularly to look at the people's, the photographs of people. And I like looking at their eyes. And up where I live, I live kind of, kind of up in the mountains. There's sometimes you, uh, you see in various places these photographs of the old loggers or the farmstead um, kind of families. And um, for a long time I wasn't sure why I was attracted to this, but I just kind of found it, found it very satisfying to look at these old photographs. And slowly it kind of uh, dawned on me, the reason I was so attracted to it was, um, especially the eyes, was that the moment of that photograph was a moment of being alive for those people. Their time on earth was included that particular moment. The, the life force, the vitality, the intentions of their lives, their fears, their, their joys, were all being expressed in that particular moment, in that photograph. And, um, and you know, in some photographs you really see the life coming through in the, in the, in the eyes, and some you don't. Um, some of the ones where you don't is because of the photographer, perhaps, and some of it's because, you know, unfortunately there was no much life there. People were worn down and exhausted. A friend of mine doing research on a book uh, on Berkeley in 100 years ago, um, kind of uh, research on her house in Berkeley, and her house is quite old, and she found out that a man who lived in that house, uh, no, a woman who lived in that house um, 100 years ago, <coughs> on her death certificate, it said, a cause of death, exhaustion. Um, but, you know, each of us is given a certain length of time to be alive, and we're not sure when, how long it's going to be. And this is our time. And somehow looking at those old photographs reminds me that, for me, my time is right now. And what I see through my eyes, the life in my eyes, or in my body, in my thoughts, this is my time to, to be awake, to live, to be present. And it's as valid a time to be alive as any other time. And that, um, but that there's something timeless about for me looking at these photographs. Because even though that existed in a moment, <laughs> in a moment, or that photograph, those, that twinkle in the eyes or that expression or whatever, and now those people are long gone, that for them in that moment, that was their, their moment in the timeless present. And then, and my moment in the timeless present is now. And the timeless present is the same timeless present for everyone. The timeless present of those people 100 years ago is the same timeless present, the eternal now, as it, is, as it was for the Buddha. That when, when, when we get a <coughs> sense of the timeless, timelessness of the present, the fullness of the present, that there's, a, there's no time that separates us from the Buddha, from the people in that photograph 100 years ago, from those we've known who have died. 
There's something about the timeless present which connects us, that we share. It's exactly the same. When the Buddha was awakened to the timeless present, it's exactly the same one that's present right now for us. So for me, it lends itself to a feeling of preciousness of my time that I'm alive, importance of it. And part of that, enjoying the preciousness of life, is a feeling of of contentment. Contentment is not an easy, necessarily, feeling to come to, to have. Um, I gave a talk some time ago on contentment, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, uh, these are not the values that corporate America wants their workers to have. <laughs> if you go, if you go to you know to get hired, and they say, "What are your good qualities?" and you say, "Well, I'm a very content person," <laughs> uh, they're probably not going to hire you, because they want someone who's not content, who's driven um, to get ahead and get the company ahead and make profits, and who feels like the present moment is not enough, uh, because otherwise, <laughs> you know, the company's not going to get ahead, maybe. Um, and I think, you know, advertisements, uh, advertisers don't want to give you the message, you know. I mean, imagine someone paying a big advertisement, in the, you know, in the front of the Chronicle or, you know, in the middle of some famous soap opera on television. And it's, a, it's advertisement for the tremendous benefits of contentment. To, have, to be content with few desires. Wouldn't that be something? We don't do that. I've never seen that kind of advertisement. You have to come to Spirit Rock for that. <laughs> um, when I was um, a teenager, I was very strongly attracted to uh, Catholic monasteries. And it was one of the things I felt very strongly drawn was to go off and become a Catholic monk. And I had uh, really no interest at all in Catholic theology. And I didn't think it mattered. <laughs> At least I didn't think it mattered. <laughs> uh, the um, the point was that uh, like the, my sense, my contact grew up a little bit in Europe and visited monasteries, and and my sense was that uh, there was something about a certain contentment in life, a certain sense of being connected to a timelessness of the present, the fullness of the present, a simplicity of the present, that was lived in those cloistered walls. And um, when I looked around me in society and looked for other examples of other models of how to touch that, I didn't know of any. And so since that seemed, that, that sense of contentment was something very physical for me and very, felt very intimate and very integral to what it was like to feel the, the value of life, the joy of life, I felt this great attraction to go live in a monastery. And before I ended up doing that, I uh, discovered Buddhist practice. And so, um, so that, that kind of filled that need. The Buddha talked a lot about contentment. <laughs> contentment. He, he said that contentment is an important part of the path of practice. Uh, he, when he defined what was the Dharma, what was the teachings of he said the teachings, he gave a list of things, but he said part of how you know it's the real, the real teachings is that if it leads to contentment, not to discontent. Um, the monastic training that uh, 
is a training in part in contentment. Uh, there's a training, uh, mona- the mon- Buddhist monastics uh, need to learn to live with very little. Basically, they learn to live with the requisites, their, what they mostly need, their, their clothes, their medicine, their food, and shelter. And um, compared to many of us, that's quite minimal, perhaps. And uh, even that, they're not supposed to necessarily consider to be, uh, to be their own. Um, and I know it's quite difficult to be content with so little. When I was in Burma, I was ordained together with another American. And um, he came to Burma with um, two of the biggest suitcases I've ever seen. And one suitcase was filled with uh, bottles of vitamins and nutritional supplements. And I mean, he could have opened a pharmacy in Burma with it. It's just it was quite impressive. And, um, and he brought this whole, prefer- you know, he had benches and cushions. And it's quite hard to get to Burma, right? And he brought all this stuff. So it was fine, I thought. And, and, uh, but then we were ordained together. And one of the rules of a monk is that you're not allowed to keep any food that's given to you beyond 12 o'clock noon. And you have to forfeit it completely. Give it, you know, give it to someone else. And so he was very, very fond of his diet. And he was very fond of papayas. And we had a collection of them in his room. Not an easy thing to do in a meditation monastery, but he, he had figured out how to have a collection of papayas. And, um, and then, the, he there, then, then there was this dilemma, what to do uh, when he became ordained as a monk, because come 12 o'clock noon, he couldn't keep them anymore. He had to, you know, give them away. So luckily, maybe, I don't know if luckily, but uh, Ruth Dennison's husband was... Uh, at the retreat. Wonderful man. Great big heart. And um, he was not a monk. So this American took all his papayas at 11.59 and he had a little little arrangement with Henry. (laughs) 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 And he would offer them to Henry with a kind of a, you know, a wink in his eye. And then uh, the next morning, Henry would get up and walk down the hall with the pies and offer them back. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so this particular monk was not learning the, um, the, the practice of contentment. He had an end run around it. So part of what monastic training is, is you take a form, an external form, that's supposed to help and support really the inner development, the inner change. The outer form is just a kind of strategy. Um, but the, what's really pointing to is what the change inside, and which is also what lay people are trying to do when they practice. And part of that is to develop contentment. And part of contentment is being with perhaps few desires, or maybe having a lot of desires, but not caring whether they get fulfilled. Because it's very easy to have desires. Have you noticed? Desires are like a dime a dozen. I mean, they're like the cheapest thing around. I mean, I can just like produce a desire. And moments notice, you, can, you ask for a desire, and I'll give it to you. <laughs> so desires come easily. But uh, but 
what happens to many of us is we get hooked on to the desires. Uh, we believe them, they're necessary. We, uh, um, we feel a certain compulsion around them. Um, we feel afraid if they're not going to be fulfilled. We get involved with our desires rather than letting them just arise and pass. Um, and the problem is not desires, the problem is the compulsion or the drivenness um, or the hooks that desire has. And so to have fewness of desires, I think more, you know, can, you know, contentment doesn't necessarily mean having few desires, but it means having fewness of compulsion, that you can just see the desires arise and they self-liberate. <clears throat> that was an interesting one. There it goes. One of the practices I, I recommend to people is the practice of writing out a desire. If you've never done this, you should really look for a really juicy opportunity for this. Find some time when you're in the throes of a strong desire. And um, if you're an addict, it works even better. <laughs> Cigarettes or something. And, um, and feel the desire arise. And don't act on it. Maybe even sit down. And, and just be with the desire and kind of feel it arise and explore it and feel it rise and be stronger and stronger and really get into the sense of compulsion. How, you know, it feels like it has to happen now, you know, or, or else. You know, the whole world's going to come to an end if my desire is not fulfilled now. And it's great to have those kinds of desires because you can really kind of, you know, it has this, this you know, it's like the rodeo. <laughs> and then, um, and then the, the, the important, significant part of the practice of writing out a desire is to hang in there, don't act on it, until it passes, until the wave breaks. And you get down to the other side where the wave of desire fades away. And after a few minutes, it's no longer there. And then reflect on the difference and reflect on what you learned. And you learn that desires perhaps can feel very compulsive, very necessary in the moment. But it's an illusion. And that many of the desires you know, if we let them, if we just kind of let ride them out, will dissipate on their own. The um, and I know people have done this, especially people who are you know cigarette addicts or whatever, and they report that it's very empowering to do this, to to find out that they have this power and this ability to ride out the desire. Now, if we don't ride out the desire, but we follow through on all our desires, either actually kind of physically go out and get the desire or we simply pursue them in our fantasy, one after the other, it can set up a certain momentum of discontent, momentum of restlessness, where when it gets strong enough, it doesn't really matter if you fulfill your desire. The momentum of desire and discontent is there that you still want something else to fill that. You just want, you're always looking for something to fill. And it's possible to never feel satisfied, no matter how much you get, because of that momentum. Um, you see it in two-year-olds, that kind of momentum. And um, maybe it's okay in two-year-olds when they're kind of trying to discover the world. My son um, cannot, can have a desire without even knowing what it is he wants. I've seen him um, being carried in our arms, and he, he reaches out like this on his back to grab what's back there. And he has no idea what's back there. He just knows he wants it. So for many people, desires can have a life of their own. And it, it's very tricky, it's very important to see this, because um, if you don't see that desire is what's 
you know, this empty desire, this driven, drivenness of the desire is what's perpetuating you, you might f- succumb to the illusion that it's the object of desire which is going to satisfy you. But if you realize it's just, it's just desire, just looking for a convenient object, then perhaps you don't uh, fall into the illusion of always needing to have it fulfilled. One of the sad things that can happen with desire is that if we spend a lot of time either in fantasy or in actuality pursuing our desire, it alienates, it, alienates us from ourselves. Um, in that the desire is usually an external object, something that we want. It's usually slightly, you know, in the future. Usually the desire is not something you have right now. It's something you want maybe in a second or a minute or a year. And so you kind of left yourself. You're, you're oriented away from yourself as long as you have a desire. And that orienting away, if it's done persistently and regularly, alienated, alienates our, us from ourselves. We don't, we're not in touch with ourselves. We don't know what's going on with ourselves, really. And that sense of alienation leads to a sense of malcontent, discontent. And that discontent then can drive more desire, more wanting. Miscontent can drive a lot of external projections and wanting and aversion. We kind of look outside of us for some kind of solace or satisfaction or relief. So when my son was about a year old, someone sent us this outdoor play structure, plastic from Toys R Us. And I uh, came, UPS brought it. And um, I was sick at that time. I had a little cold. I was getting over it, but I still had a little bit cold. I was weak. And I'd been stay- I had been in bed for three or four days. And I was getting kind of restless. I was feeling, you know, I was well enough to be restless, but not so well that I should really get up and go. go. And so I was feeling kind of the restlessness, the malcontent, the miscontent. I was bored. And then UPS knocks on the door and says, I have this for you. So great. So I looked at it. Oh, this is interesting. It's a play structure for my son. And I looked outside. It was kind of misty. It was a little bit rainy. It was outside. It was kind of, you know, it was just kind of rain. It kind of stopped. It was kind of misty a little bit. So, oh, I think I'll put it up. And, it, the, and so I opened the instruction and said, you know, you can put it up in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> So I said, you know, great. So I went out there with a mallet and a hammer and this, you know, these big pieces and tried to get them together and hammer them. And, and it took maybe half an hour at least. And it was a big thing, you know, I had to kind of move these big pieces around and stick them in. And, and um, by the time I finished, I was exhausted. And I said, oh, what did I do here? You know, I felt like, oh, I'm going to have relapse now. So then again, I felt kind of miscontent. Oh, you know, I feel kind of bad about what's happened now. So I did one of the very common strategies we do in such a situation. Uh, I blamed UPS. <laughs> <laughs> how could he have brought it? You know, how, how, the first thought went through my mind was, how could he have brought it today when I was sick? You know, it was raining. <laughs> You know, not taking responsibility for myself, but rather turning out externally for it. And the whole thing was kind of, I was not really being willing to stay with myself. I was being kind of driven to kind of search first for some satisfaction of putting something together and reaching for that. And then once that didn't work exactly the way it was supposed to, then looking for something to blame. And for many people, uh, uh, desire and aversion, desire and blame, are wonderful kind of... uh, 
caffeines of the soul that uh, many people are addicted to and uh, keeps the momentum, keeps the discontent and the malcontent uh, going. So to discover contentment, I think, is a really, really important part of life. And I think probably some of you, when you hear that, uh, maybe your heart kind of drops. You feel a bit discouraged when you hear that contentment is a part of the path. Partly, I think some people are afraid that if they're content, that they're not going to succeed in life. They're not going to race ahead or accomplish things. Or They need to have their discontent. They need to have their desire. They need to have their aversion. They need to have their fear in order to do things and accomplish things and protect themselves. And they don't want to give up those kinds of things. So, and they feel, well, if I'm content, then you know, I won't do the things that are exciting in life. There certainly might have to be a, re- a reorientation, a reevaluation of what we do, but I would argue that actually your life becomes more satisfying as you as you find your way to contentment than if um, you stay the other way. And contentment is a falling away of anxiety, falling away of restlessness, of reaching forward, of fear, um, of being fragmented, of being disconnected. Contentment uh, often is a, a settle, uh, contentment is kind of a settling. If we're driven by our desires or our fears or our preoccupations and our fantasies, often our energy, our kind of center of attention sometimes is upwelling in an unhealthy way up into our head. As we get contented, we feel the settling down, settling down into the center of gravity. Sometimes contentment is a very embodied feeling, feeling of fullness, of integration, of harmony in the body. And in fact, I feel very strongly for me that part of what's so deeply satisfying about contentment is its embodied quality, the feelings that arise in the body. And I would say that a lot of the really important qualities that support and sustain Dharma practice are qualities or experiences that arise in our embodied self. That our sense of being in touch with our body and feeling what is being expressed in our body is invaluable, maybe necessary, for really going deeply into Dharma practice, at least some of the beautiful things that arise, like contentment. One of the forms of contentment that the Buddha talked about is a contentment of, um, he also talked about it as a joy, the joy of being blameless. And what he meant specifically there was to live an ethical life so that you can go into any assembly and no one's going to blame you because you, you don't have to be embarrassed for what you've done. And this works really well, apparently, in ancient India, but in modern America, this doesn't work so well because many of us feel we're to blame even if we don't, haven't done anything yet. You know, we feel kind of anxious about who we are and people are going to see us even if we haven't done anything unethical. Uh, kind of this uh, deep existential guilt that many people carry around with them, or, or self-hate. But the contentment of living an ethical life and knowing that no one's going to blame you for anything. <clears throat> There are different kinds of <coughs> there are other kinds of contentment. There's a there's a contentment of suppressed desire, suppressed aspirations, and I think some people in our society are told, "Oh, you should be content with your lot." And contentment is a very bad news because it means that uh, somehow you're being disrespected, and your needs and your aspirations don't have a place in this society or in this company or this place. 
So you should learn how to practice contentment. It just means basically, um, you know, accept your lot in some unhealthy way. And that's certainly not what we're talking about here. If anything, it's the opposite. And there's certainly the contentment of um, having our desires met. And as I said earlier, part of the problem with that is that it can be very satisfying, but it can just be a never-ending quest for more desires. The, the satisfaction of having a desire met doesn't last that long. And so then we want something else to fill that place. I remember when I was nine or something, I really wanted a toy robot. Really, really wanted it. Really wanted it. Desperate for it. And I couldn't wait for Christmas. And, and you know, and then I didn't know if my parents were going to get it or not. And I was just desperate. I, you know, I couldn't live without that toy robot. And I got it. And I, I swear, I probably wasn't interested in it for more than ten minutes. And it just languished in the closet, the poor thing. <laughs> And American culture is so strongly driven by a focus on a freedom to do whatever we want. The American ideal, I believe, is freedom to do. The Buddhist ideal is also freedom, but it's not freedom to do, it's the freedom from. It's the freedom from compulsion. The freedom, the freedom to follow through in our compulsion, the Buddhists would say, is not real freedom. And so if you have unlimited <laughs> access to fulfill your desires, you might feel a certain satisfaction, but you're certainly not free. And then there's the, the contentment of having few desires or few compulsions. Part of the value of coming on retreat for some people is to find out how little you need in order to be happy, to be content. You don't need to know what's happening in the Olympics. You don't need to know what's happening with the 49ers. (laughs) Until tomorrow. (laughs) And uh, it can be a real real, um, inspiration for people to come in a place like this and find out what it's like to be alive without having much of the entertainment and needs filled. It can be so simple here, the joy of simplicity. There's a story of Amullah Nazardin. He, he, w- he was a very poor man, and he lived in a little hovel, a little shack, next to a very wealthy mansion where the king's minister lived. And every day for dinner, uh, Mullah Nazardin just, every, every meal, Mullah Nazardin just ate beans and rice, beans and rice, beans and rice. And the minister, who was very wealthy, feasted on wonderful tofu stew and in <laughs> 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 the light meals and <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful meals and prunes for breakfast and <laughs> and, um, and the, the minister, you know, he was kind of he was close friends with Mullah Nazardine, and he wanted him to have a little better life and. So he went over there one day to the little shack and said to Bula, you know, you don't have to live this way. If you would just learn how to flatter the king, all these wealth, all these riches could be yours. And Mullah re- replied, and if you just learn to be content with beans and rice, 
he wouldn't have to flatter the king. <laughs> so it's not necessarily a good thing to have all our desires met, or even a good percentage of them, because they can breed further desire, which leads to often to greater discontent. And also what's interesting about the fulfillment of our desires, I don't want to knock it completely. I mean, I'd like you, some of your desires to be fulfilled. But there are some traps in it. Another trap in the fulfillment of desires is that it can re- reinforce the belief that you need to have those things. It reinforces um, a belief which is set up for further disappointment in the future. You might have fulfilled this one, but then you've gotten the message that having these, these goods, having this kind of situation, having this kind of approval, having this kind of security, that is what it's needed in order to feel deeply secure, deeply happy. And so the fulfillment of a desire sometimes reinforces our illusions. Um, the illusions, for example, of the point of life is to fulfill desires, to have infinite recreational opportunities is the point of life. Or security is the point of life. Or pleasure is the point of life. Or approval is what we need in order to feel, feel good about ourselves. Um, and I hope that you get a sense from your contact with the Dharma that it's possible to really question deeply those assumptions. To really address those, is the point of life those things? Is those things necessary for us to be happy? And, be, and hopefully you begin to get an inkling that's not, not necessarily so. And you begin really, <clears throat> maybe softening or dissolving or really holding lightly some of the very deep fundamental assumptions you carry but what you need to have in life so you can be happy. Without that very deep questioning inquiry, um, I don't think a Dharma practice necessarily can go that far. Do you know about the eight worldly dharmas? Probably you all do. Uh, uh, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, uh, praise and blame, fame and disgrace. Sometimes one of them is called success and failure. When we're interested in the world out there providing security and s- approval and a sense of self, then we can fluctuate between these, these opposites. We're very concerned about praise and blame. If someone praises us, we feel great and energized another caffeine of the soul. If someone criticizes us, it also energizes us. If someone does neither, we fall asleep. In the neutral place is not a place where some people feel comfortable or know where life, how, the life force, where it, you know, the life vitality, where it is when neither is happening. What is it like to live a life that's not influenced by the eight worldly dharmas? Do you want to live that? Do you want to explore that? Do you want to inquire the ways to which gain and loss, success and failure, praise and blame, the way they work for you in your life, the way they influence you, the way they affect your well-being? One of the very strong sources of discontent is the sense of self. Or maybe to say it a little bit more 
usefully is the way in which we construct an idea of who we are, the representation of ourselves that we use to present ourselves to the world or to ourselves. There's a constant representation process. We represent ourselves to ourselves in the world. And the world supports us. Society helps, helps us. To, they, they help us create that representation of who we are. And, you know, some people choose their clothes more carefully than they choose their words. When we're choosing your clothes that carefully, we're choosing how to represent ourselves, the image we want to create for ourselves, perhaps. The problem with having a constructed idea or imagined idea or sense of self is that it's always going to be incomplete. Any idea you have of who you are is only part of who you are at the best. It might not even be who you are, but at the best, it's only part of who you are. And so if you're living and, see, see, if you're living and seeing yourself through that idea, you're seeing yourself incompletely. And if you're seeing yourself incompletely, you're going to feel incomplete. You're going to feel discontent. And you're going to feel fragile because a sense of self, a constructed sense of self, needs to be reinforced. It needs to be recreated day by day. When I was in college, I got into doing art. I loved it. I did a lot of drawing and my roommate was a born-again artist, and so there was a certain kind of, you know, encouragement from him, and, and um, I took art classes and even became an art major, and just, mostly so I could just take more art classes. And, um, and I was quite happy doing all this, and then one day I decided that what I was going to be or who I was was an artist, and that was the end. It's that I, literally, it's kind of an amazing story. From that day on, I stopped doing art. Because then I had to do art to satisfy the identity. Before that, I just did it because it just came out of me. But then I, oh, I have to be an artist. What do artists do? I have to, you know, have to show me. I have to, let, I have to tell people. You know, people have to see me as an artist. I can't just go out and tell them I'm an artist. You know, I have to show them. So I better do some art. So, or just for my own sake. So. As soon as I, it was an amazing, amazing lesson for me that when I assumed that identity, it, it required for me, the way I took it on, to keep doing it, the art, for the sake of the identity, to maintain it and sustain it. But I wasn't capable of doing art for that reason, so I stopped for a long time. So the sense of self can be a source of discontent. Another source of discontent is that the belief that annoyance, unpleasantness, sickness, tragedy, death shouldn't be part of life. It shouldn't be part of my life. That all those things are symptoms of my failure or my incompetence. And I think there's a lot of people who live either, either consciously or unconsciously with this kind of idea that if they're sick or if the tragedy strikes or there's something annoying or unpleasant, that that's, that shouldn't happen. That shouldn't be that way. 
And of course it shouldn't be that way. However, there's also what happens with life. And if we have this assumption that we're going to protect ourselves from all those things, then uh, that protection becomes, can be a source of more fragility and more discontent. It's possible to experience our life fully in both its, soy, both its joys and its sorrows and continue with a kind of contentment. Maybe contentment is not the right word in some situations. So one of the principles of Dharma practice that I mentioned the first night is the appreciation and the recognition of wholesome qualities within us strengthens those qualities. And the converse is also true. The recognition of the unwholesome qualities inside of us tends to diminish those qualities. It's like if the light of awareness has this dual consequence. It's kind of like, like a greenhouse. If uh, there's no light in the greenhouse, then the mold grows and the plants die. But if you turn the light on, then the plants grow and the mold fades away. So when, when the light of awareness shines on our inner life, our good qualities tend to grow if, as we recognize them and see them, and the unwholesome qualities tend to diminish. So this also works with contentment. So in order to cultivate contentment, it helps if you, have some, if you value it and feel like it's an important part of life. It also helps if you actually do things to encourage it. If we run around being busy all the time, frantic all the time, contentment's not going to show its face. It's going to hide. You have to kind of give contentment a chance to arise. It's one of those emotions which stays hidden if we stay busy, frantic, running around. So if you want those certain, it's like some of these things that only will appear if you slow down to some degree. So not doing too many things at once supports contentment. And maybe you don't want to do that, live that way all the time, but just look for more opportunities in your daily life where maybe you can do fewer things, have more time as you do things. I, I recommend to people sometimes if they have a, a date book and they're going to schedule you know, their day, to schedule in sacred time in the day. If they have a, you know, if they have a 15 minute appointment or an hour event that they have to go to, to schedule in you know, 10 minutes after that for, your, <laughs> for yourself of sacred time. So some sense of leisure, some sense of, I call it sacred leisure. So that something else can happen to you that can't happen if you're always busy. Some of the mystery or some of the grace of life, it's great, it's kind of grace, but you have to make, you know, you have to set the conditions for it to arise. And one of the great challenges of modern life is deciding what's the most important to do and to maybe disregard others. My kind of sense of our modern life, especially here in America and maybe California, is that we have more choices that we have to make and can make than anyone, any human being has ever had to make in history. 
just every, everyday ordinary people have a phenomenal amount of choice. It used to be people didn't have to choose much. They were born in certain families, certain life, certain profession that they had to live. And they were always going to live in that village or that town and do that job. And they didn't have to choose much. But we have to choose all these things. Jobs and work and education and housing and partners and just endless, endless choice. I think it's almost too much. It is too much because the amount of choice that's available to us, no human being can, can follow through on in one lifetime. Many of us can have a lot of really wonderful, worthwhile things we want to pursue, and it's not possible to pursue them all. And then there's a kind of a feeling of loss, you know, feeling something is wrong or miscontent. And I think part of a healthy life is actually being able to really look and see what's really most important for me. What do I really want to get behind? What do I really want to cultivate and develop and make a bigger part of my life? And then wisely, maybe drop some other things, which maybe are worthwhile in and of themselves, but we can't have it all. And I think certainly for Dharma practice, if you want to have the sacred leisure, sacred time, that takes time. Time to be timeless. Beautiful, the beautiful thing about the timeless is you can say, hey, Howie, today I experienced the timeless at 8.30. <laughs> so, um, but you know, you have to give yourself the time for the timeless. Otherwise, it's not gonna, just going to it appears sometimes by accident, but practice makes you accident-prone. To spend time every day meditating is another way of cultivating contentment. To relax in meditation and to use the meditation to inquire and look deeply into what actually motivates us and makes us run. More importantly, I think, it's very important to look discontentment right in the face. You have to be really honest. If you want to be content, study your discontentment. If you try to make yourself content, it's maybe a little bit problematic at times. But if you really kind of look honestly at the ways in which you're discontent and try to work with them and resolve it, look at the beliefs that are present that are supporting that discontent. What do you believe that you have to get? Why do you believe that? What do you believe is going to happen if you don't get that? Um, to begin exploring a discontentment, to feel it in your body, feel the restlessness and anxiety in your body, and learn what it's like to feel strong sensations in your body of restlessness, anxiety, and learn to ride, learn to ride those out. Learn to kind of, in a sense, welcome them. Maybe you don't want to be welcome them, but at least ride them out. Learn to make space for them, room for them, so they, they don't drive us and compel us to act. So look at a discontentment straight in the face. One of the things you might learn if you look at discontentment straight in the face is that there's wise and there's unwise discontent. 
So we don't want to say that all discontent is problematic. There is a certain kind of discontent that is helpful for the process of engaging in Dharma practice. To be, you know, if, you, if you're a stockbroker and you live on wherever stockbrokers live, Madison Square, no, they live on Wall Street, right? Someplace, is that where they live? They live <laughs> nowadays they live in the front of their computer, it doesn't matter where you live. But so that, you know, and, and day and night, you know, up to all night long, you know, it's in front of that blue screen, you know, and the numbers and studying reports and chasing after money and, and in a hurry and taking phone calls and everything's about money, money, money and desperate for more money. And, and, uh, and most of the people here in this room, I think, would have a certain disenchantment with that kind of life. And if you kind of entered into that life a little bit too much, I think pretty quickly you'd feel discontent. This isn't really what it's about. That's a kind of healthy discontent to feel. When we put all our eggs in fragile baskets, in unhealthy baskets, to feel discontent with that. To feel a certain discontent with the, with the pleasure of praise. Not that, it's, not that it's okay to feel pleasure with praise, but to feel that it's actually some discontent with hanging on to that or... And then, of course, the opposite, feeling some discontent with the whole system of praise and blame, which often go together. <coughs> a discontent with our suffering. I think uh, Buddhists, Buddhist practitioners, often have a very healthy level of discontent about their suffering. Or I call it sometimes an intolerance of their suffering. Buddhism is a religion of tolerance, but the one place we're supposed to be intolerant is of our suffering. And doesn't mean have aversion to it for it. It doesn't mean to hate it or doesn't mean attacking it. It can include accepting it, but intolerance means I'm not this I'm not this discontent of feeling the suffering. I think I'm going to work with that. I'm going to bring my awareness to it. I don't want to just sit here and continue wallowing in this particular, whatever the suffering might be. There must be an alternative to this. The alternative sometimes can be very close at hand. Maybe just in the in awareness itself, in the timelessness of the present. Or maybe it's not so close at hand. But to feel the motivation, the inspiration, the aspiration, to really resolve the suffering. Too many of us are too content, or tolerant, maybe is a better word, of the small sufferings of our life. How we drive our car, maybe is we drive it in a way that's tense. But that's not very important, right? We're more concerned about getting somewhere. So there can be healthy discontent, and there can be unhealthy discontent. So I don't want to give discontent just to blanket bad name here today in this Dharma talk. And there could also be maybe unhealthy contentment or unhelpful contentment. Sometimes contentment is a dead end. It lends itself to complacency when we practice. We feel content, people meditate for some time, sometimes we'll have times when they feel really content and comfortable in their practice and they can become complacent. 
they don't really make the effort anymore to be present. They kind of coast on the feelings of contentment. Sometimes they fall asleep then. It's been long periods of time just sleeping because of that complacency. Contentment on the path is not an end to itself. But rather contentment as part of the path, the way the Buddha taught, contentment (laughs) is a support for letting us continue to look deeper. To look deeper into our fears, our tensions, our contractions. Contentment is a source of inspiration to look deeper into the possibility of being free. Contentment is a kind of a enticement to keep looking and keep being inspired. So you can keep coming back and keep looking for the possibility of discovering the phenomenal depth of beauty inside of you. And I think the deeper the deeper your practice goes, the more you'll recognize that there's a tremendous beauty, not only in yourself, but you'll begin seeing it in other people. (coughs) Thomas Merton writes, (coughs) Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths where neither, where neither sin nor desire can reach. The, the, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> you should sit here and be content for a while. <coughs> <coughs> then it was that I... Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths where neither sin nor desire can reach, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we can see each other that way, there would be no reason for war, for hatred, for cruelty. I suppose the big problem would be that we, we would fall down and worship each other. The beauty of every person who ever lived is available right now in the timeless present. And if we find the contentment and the peace of our life at this moment, at this particular moment when the snapshot is taken, that that timeless present is a direct and intimate connection with the Buddha and all the beings, all the people we've known. It's a connection to their beauty, their preciousness. All the people who have passed away can somehow be touched in the contentment and joy and peace of what is timeless 
right now. Let's take a few moments to sit quietly. Perhaps we can start the next sitting uh, maybe five minutes late so, so that you have a chance to do a little bit of walking and stretching before the next sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.